Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast, which is a product of the Bridge Network, recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. My name is Ian Cooper. Today I'm in conversation with Professor Federico Fabrini, who is the director of the DCU Brexit Institute and principal investigator for the Bridge Network. Federico Fabrini has also been awarded the Charlemagne Prize Fellowship by the Karlsprice Stiftung in Aachen for his research on the Conference on the Future of Europe. Today, we're talking about the Conference on the Future of Europe. Uh, Federico, uh, welcome. Hello, Ian. Thank you very much. It's late 2020. The United Kingdom has left the European Union. An EU of 27 member states is thinking about its post-Brexit future. And they'll do so through a two-year process of debate and deliberation that is called Conference on the Future of Europe. Now, Federico, before we talk about the Conference on the Future of Europe, let's talk about the problems that the conference is meant to address. What are the problems facing the EU that require a complete relaunch of the European integration process? We should remember that the original idea to launch a conference on the future of Europe uh, was put forward by French President Emmanuel Macron in March 2019, exactly at the time when the United Kingdom was expected uh, to leave the European Union. So the whole uh, project of a conference on the future of Europe uh, is very much connected to Brexit uh, and inspired by the idea that the withdrawal of the United Kingdom requires the European Union to respond uh, with appropriate uh, institutional reforms. Uh, In fact, even though the EU and its 27 member states uh, actually managed uh, the UK withdrawal pretty well uh, by keeping their unity uh, and succeeding in uh, defending their priorities throughout the Brexit negotiations. Uh, What we know is that in the last decade, the EU has really moved from one crisis to uh, another. Uh, In fact, uh, in short uh, succession, uh, the euro crisis, uh, the migration crisis, Uh, and the rule of law crisis have severely tested the unity of their member state, as well as the resolve of the EU as an organization uh, in tackling uh, internal and external uh, challenges. Now, as a matter of fact, the EU uh, still continues to live through crisis. Uh, even after Brexit, uh, the Union has, has had difficulties uh, in dealing with the challenge of climate change, difficulties in dealing with the issue of enlargement, and perhaps most importantly of all, the EU faced major challenges in dealing uh, with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 to a large degree deepened the cleavages that had emerged in the context of the prior uh, European crisis. And it also made uh, more urgent the need for uh, reforming the uh, European Union. So in a sense, the Conference of the Future of Europe uh, is precisely designed uh, to deal with the weaknesses of the EU system of governance that have emerged in the context of the Euro crisis, and by doing so, to relaunch the EU after Brexit. But why can't the current EU simply focus on addressing these problems with new and better policies? Is there some kind of basic weakness at the heart of the EU's institutional and governance structures that needs to change to make it possible to address these crises? 
I think all the recent crises that the European Union has weathered have exposed uh, the existence of severe uh, institutional and substantive weaknesses in the EU system of governance. So even though these crises have taken place in different policy realm, uh, be it economic and monetary union for the euro crisis, or uh, the Schengen free movement zone for the migration crisis or the EU foundational values as far as the rule of, rule of law crisis is concerned. Uh, in reality, uh, all these crises are accustomed by the fact that the EU lacks proper institutional mechanism and some substantive powers uh, to deal uh, with the challenges of war uh, generation. So in a sense, uh, there is a, uh, Phil Rouge that cuts through all the crises that Europe has faced recently, and that has really to do with the institutional and substantive weaknesses of the EU current uh, constitutional architecture. On top of this, I think there is uh, another issue that Europe faces, uh, which is a problem of complacency. Uh, too often it is being said that the European Union models through and that it is somehow inevitable for the European Union uh, to evolve in the way that it has in the last few years. But in fact, uh, constitutional engineering uh, is essential to make sure that a union of states and people uh, remain viable. And therefore, uh, the idea of establishing a conference on the future of Europe uh, as a way to tackle the institutional and substantive weaknesses uh, of the EU constitutional architecture, I think is very welcome. That's very interesting. Okay, now let's turn to the conference on the future of Europe. Uh, where did the idea for a conference on the future of Europe come from? French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, who by all means has been the most proactive European leader uh, on the scene in the last few years, uh, put forward uh, first the idea of a conference on the future of Europe in March 2019, uh, just before the European Parliament elections that took place in May 2019. Now, following the results of the European Parliament uh, election, uh, that idea has become a core policy priority of the new EU institutional cycle. Uh, the new president of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, included the launch of a conference on the future of Europe in her uh, political priorities uh, for the new commission term. And the European Parliament has also enthusiastically endorsed this idea. In fact, for a long time, the European Parliament had been making the case that Europe required uh, institutional and treaty reforms, uh, and therefore uh, the plan for a conference on the future of Europe also fit perfectly well uh, within its agenda. Uh, what is worth notice, noticing, however, is that also the European Council and the Council of the European Union have now thrown their support behind this initiative, uh, especially because of uh, the strong support for, the, for this project coming from a number of member states, notably France and Germany, which also put forward a joint document uh, to outline their vision on the conference. Uh, the intergovernmental institutions of the EU are now backing uh, the uh, initiative. As I was saying before, COVID-19 uh, has had an impact on the plans. In fact, the conference was due to start in May uh, 2020, but of course the coronavirus pandemic delayed the whole process. There is, however, uh, increasing uh, belief that uh, thanks to the German presidency of the council in the second half of 2020, the conference will be due to start in the autumn of this year uh, with a plan to have it completed by the time of the French presidency of the council in the first half of 2022. 
So it sounds like the council was initially much more skeptical of the conference. The positions of the various EU institutions on the plan for a conference on the future of Europe uh, aligned with a traditional stance uh, that they have had on the issues of institutional reforms. Uh, the European Parliament has been, unsurprising, the most enthusiastic supporter of an ambitious plan for the Conference on the Future of Europe, uh, which in its view uh, should tackle questions of institutional reforms and, and possibly end with the revisions of the treaty. Uh, the Council, on the contrary, has been much more uh, ambivalent in, uh, uh, in its support for the conference, and it, it doesn't really necessarily see it as a process that will result in treaty change, while the Commission positions itself somehow in between the Council and the Parliament, uh, seeking to play the role of a honest broker uh, in, the whole, uh, in the whole initiative. Uh, we will have to see, in the end, which of these visions prevails. But what I think it's important to notice is that these types of constitutional processes, once they get off the ground, uh, they evolve on the basis of an internal dynamic that very often is outside the controls of the institutions that created it. And that leads me to my next question. What can the Conference on the Future of Europe actually accomplish? Uh, can you give us some historical context? Um, how does it compare to similar efforts in the past that were meant to relaunch the process of European integration? The Conference on the Future of Europe is an out-of-the-box uh, idea. Uh, the treaties on the European Union, of course, do not mention the Conference on the Future of Europe. The treaties on the country set up a procedure uh, for their amendment, uh, but this is not what uh, President Macron initially flagged out, uh, and this is not what the EU institutions uh, endorsed. So from this point of view, actually, uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe can be a new model to reform the EU, which evokes two illustrious precedent. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the Conference of Messina, and on the other hand, uh, the Convention on the Future of Europe. Uh, the Conference of Messina, uh, that takes its name from the Sicilian city that hosted it uh, in 1955, was instrumental to relaunch European integration after the failure of the European defense community and paved the way towards the uh, adoption of what became the Treaties of Rome, establishing uh, the European economic uh, communities. And similarly, uh, the European Convention in the early 2000 was an out-of-the-box initiative uh, created by the European Council to think about the future of Europe and plan forward uh, amendments to the EU institutional architecture, once again, done in a way which was not foreseen by the then uh, EU treaties. So from this point of view, uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe, which is about to start today, uh, uh, presents similarities with this precedence. Uh, first, it is an out-of-the-box initiative. Uh, secondly, it takes place at a critical time in the process of European integration. And if things go well, uh, last but not least, uh, the conference could really become a groundbreaking initiative uh, to relaunch the European Union moving forward. Now we come to the rather fraught question of treaty change. Won't the kind of changes that you're talking about require amending the EU treaties? And isn't that very difficult to do? Well, if the Conference on the Future of Europe uh, wants to achieve its ambitious objectives, it will have to deal with the issue of treaty change. Uh, 
as we've seen in the context of Europe's recent crisis, there are a number of substantive and institutional shortcomings in the EU systems of governance that needs to be addressed, uh, and only treaty amendments uh, can achieve that goal. Uh, however, it is well known that the process of treaty amendment uh, is fraught with difficulties. Uh, Article 48 of the Treaty on the European Union, uh, which regulates the amendment procedure, uh, has preserved a feature that dates to the early days of the process of European integration, uh, namely the requirement that states unanimously approve amendments and unanimously ratify them. And as a consequence of that, even though the EU treaties have been changed quite often in recent times, uh, uh, the EU has experienced multiple ratification crises. Uh, for example, the Treaty of Lisbon uh, in 2001 was voted down in a referendum in Ireland, uh, forcing the member state uh, to come up uh, with uh, uh, reassurances that allowed a second vote. Then, in uh, 2005, the treaty establishing uh, a European constitution was voted down in referendums in, in France and Germany, leading to an abandonment of these treaties. And finally, uh, the Lisbon Treaty, which tried to save much uh, or most of the treaty establishing a European constitution, was also voted down once in Ireland, uh, leading once more the European Council to come up with reassurances that ultimately allowed a second uh, successful vote. So it is clear that the Article 48, the traditional uh, treaty amendment procedure foreseen uh, by the EU treaties, uh, creates multiple veto points as a requirement for uh, unanimous uh, approval. And uh, this uh, makes highly uncertain the success of an ambitious initiative uh, as the one of the Conference on the Future of Europe. I understand the problem of the unanimity rule, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, but I've actually got an additional question for you. Um, that is, Article 48 actually sets out um, the idea that that uh, to have uh, the treaty amending process would also include a convention. Um, and as far as I can tell, there was never even any discussion of convening a new convention to think about uh, possible future treaty change. Can you tell me why that was ruled out and they went for a conference instead? The Article 48 uh, procedure has codified now uh, into the treaty amendment procedure at EU level, the idea of convening a convention. Uh, this is an important legacy of the experience of the Convention on the Future of Europe that uh, 20 years ago led to the drafting of the uh, European Constitution. Uh, and it is significant because uh, the convention is a mixed body representing not just national governments, but also uh, the European Parliament, the European Commission, and very importantly, national parliamentarians uh, as well. So it's a much more deliberative uh, and uh, democratic uh, format for deciding changes uh, to the uh, EU treaties. In reality, the Conference on the Future of Europe, at least in the way how it is being envisioned uh, by some EU institutions, such as the European Parliament, uh, should work more or less like uh, a convention. Uh, I think the idea of calling it a conference um, was connected to the original plan of having this as a ad hoc 
once-off uh, and exceptional uh, initiative to reflect on, uh, on the future of Europe. Uh, but only time will tell whether, in fact, the conference uh, would not turn itself into uh, a pre-convention or even the final convention designed to draft future treaty amendments. Okay, so just to clarify, uh, under Article 48, uh, the, conference, uh, the idea would be that a convention would propose a number of amendments, but they would still have to be ratified by all the member states unanimously. Correct. So this brings us to this, the problem of the unanimity rule, that every EU member state must consent to any change to the EU treaties. Uh, it seems that's a fundamental obstacle to reform. Now, is there a way around that? The requirement of having a unanimous approval and unanimous ratification of uh, every uh, treaty amendment in the EU uh, has made the process of reforming the EU increasingly difficult, uh, particularly as membership of the EU has grown from the six founding member states uh, of the 1950s to the 27 member states we have today following, uh, following Brexit. And it is precisely to address uh, the problem of uh, unanimity and the connected difficulties of, of state veto that in reality over the last few years member states have increasingly explored alternative avenues uh, to reform the European Union and most importantly uh, what they did was to use tools of public international law, essentially the conclusion of uh, intergovernmental treaties outside the EU legal framework, as a way to circumvent uh, the unanimity rule. So particularly in the context of the responses to the Euro crisis, uh, the member states of the EU and most importantly, the member state of the Eurozone, have concluded new treaties such as the Fiscal Compact or the treaty establishing the European Stability Mechanism, ESM, or the Intergovernmental Agreement on the Single Resolution Fund, uh, which have introduced new rules on their entry into force. And for the first time ever in the history of uh, the uh, process of European integration, this new treaty do not require unanimous approval by uh, all the signatory parties in order to enter into force. So by doing so, member states have effectively neutralized the threat of state veto and made sure that uh, this new intergovernmental agreement uh, could become operational with the support of just a majority of uh, the member state. Now, of course, uh, this represents an important precedent uh, that potentially architects of the Conference on the Future of Europe uh, could consider in their own work. Uh, as I have argued uh, in uh, the report I was commissioned to write uh, by the European Parliament Constitutional Affairs Committee, uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe, for example, uh, could reflect about drafting a new document, called it Political Compact, which would have its own rules on its entry into force, uh, requiring approval by a super qualified majority of the member state. Uh, this would obviously raise uh, new questions uh, and certainly difficult uh, uh, issues as well, uh, but it could be a way to overcome the problem of unanimous ratification and make sure uh, that those member states that want to move forward uh, in the process of European integration can do so without being tied back uh, by uh, the laggard countries. 
So what you're proposing is a new political compact among some but not all EU member states in order to push the European project forward. But how would that work? Would it be voluntary? And what would happen to the EU member states that didn't join? If we follow the precedent of the treaties concluded in the context of the euro crisis, uh, the political compact should only bind the countries that have uh, signed up to it and have ratified it. Therefore, uh, those member states who do not want to conclude the treaty would not be subject uh, to it. Uh, this is an important principle of public international law that I think the political compact would have to respect. However, one should uh, bear in mind uh, the consequences that the change in the ratification rules have for the ratification game itself. Uh, in a context where every member state uh, has a veto power on the entry into force of the treaty, uh, effectively the holdouts have control on the ratification uh, dynamics. Uh, whereas in a context where a super qualified majority is sufficient for a treaty to enter into force, uh, the burden on, of not joining a treaty is now shifted to the holdouts, uh, which are faced with the difficult question whether uh, to conclude a treaty they might not love so much or rather be excluded uh, from the next step of uh, European integration. And if the uh, treaties adopted in the aftermath of the Euro crisis tell us something, is that in fact, changing the ratification uh, rules facilitates the adoption of the treaty by all uh, contracting parties. So there is indeed a risk uh, that a political compact might deepen differentiated governance uh, in the European Union, with the formation of potentially also of smaller unions within the EU itself. But in fact, we cannot exclude uh, that a change in the ratification game might address the shortcomings of the Article 48 procedure, uh, push all member states ultimately to join in the new treaty. And in fact, by doing so, pave the way towards an important and necessary reform of the European Union uh, for the future. Federico, thanks so much for talking to us today about uh, about your paper and about the your ideas for a political compact to come out of the conference on the future of Europe. And thank you. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. Catherine Martin is the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.